when someone's going home, if we're able to connect with the nurses back in community, it eases the anxiety about the patients going home, but also helps the nurses know what's going on with their community member, what they've had done, any follow-up, and it prevents them from um, readmitting to acute care. So within Interior Health, there are 54 Aboriginal bands, and uh, within that, Royal Inland being the second biggest trauma centre in BC, we have 46 of those 54 bands. Hello and welcome back to Interior Voices, an Interior Health podcast series where we explore the intersection of health and culture in the workplace, our everyday lives, and patient care. I'm Beth Blue, Communication Support for Aboriginal Health. In Episode 3, our hosts return for a discussion with Aboriginal patient navigators Deb Donald and Cassie Michelle. I'm Chris Murray, Aboriginal Lead with Interior Health for the Aboriginal Health Program and a member of the Métis Nation of BC. Hello, my name is Vanessa Mitchell. I'm from the Okanagan Nation and I'm an Aboriginal Lead with Aboriginal Health and Interior Health. My name is Sheila Lewis. I am Plains Cree and Skeechisnin, and I am a practice lead with the Aboriginal Mental Wellness Team out of the Mental Health and Substance Use Network. All right, Cassie, do you want to give a brief introduction? So I'm Cassie Michelle. I'm from Kanakabar Indian Band, which is down the canyon just outside of Lytton, BC. Um, I've been an APN for the past year and a half with Deb at Royal Inland Hospital. Prior to that, um, I've been at LPM since 2010, mainly with Interior Health, but I've also worked for a Bonaparte Indian band just outside of Cash Creek as a home care nurse, and I go back to Kanaka and do home care and soap care in the community. Excellent, thank you. And um. Uh, good morning, my name is Deb Donald, I'm from the St. First Nation, and I've lived and grew up in Kamloops. Um, this has been my home. Uh, I've been an APN, Aboriginal Patient Navigator, at Royal Inland Hospital for just over 10 years now. Uh, still love my work as the first day I started. Uh, my background, uh, my first degree is a Bachelor of Arts in, with a psych major and specializing in fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Uh, more recently became a registered social worker, so I, I believe that really kind of runs out my experience and, and how I work here as an APN at Royal Inland Hospital. Um, so I guess the conversation today is really kind of about the APN program. I know that Deb has been a huge champion in terms of kind of relaying what APNs do to me when I first started and Cassie as well. I think um, Royal Inland's pretty, I think with having three APNs has a really kind of strong hold on what the program is and what you offer to patients and how you support. So maybe if we kind of do that first initial question of mm -hmm. what is an APN? What yeah. is that role? Okay, well, I, I think what I'm going to do first is kind of give a little bit of a demographic uh, layout, geographical layout to give you a sense of the scope and area that Royal Inland covers. So within Interior Health, there are 54 Aboriginal bands quite laid out. And uh, within that, Royal Inland being the second biggest trauma center in BC, we have 46 of those 54 bands. So we have got quite mm. a population. I believe it's around 38,000 on reserve. And uh, what we know demographically is 60% of the Aboriginal population is urban. So, so we do cover quite a bit of ground. Royal Inland Hospital has eight 
floors. We're up on the ninth floor right now. And 27 wards. That's the kind of layout uh, that we cover as APNs. We are seven days a week. We've been seven days a week since we started this program and quite busy. We could be anywhere from the morgue to the cancer clinic at any given time. So throughout the day, we, we have to be able to shift gears quite quickly and tend to patients and families throughout the hospital. Anything you want to add, Cassie, just to that intro? No, I think that pretty much covers it. Okay, so as APNs, we provide a lot of emotional support, and that that could be on many levels. Um, Just providing support and explaining what's happening while they're here, what kind of procedures they might need to do. I mean, also supporting um, during a new diagnosis or the end of life, and just kind of being there with the patients and the families, trying to to quell their anxiety and their fears, because it can be quite an intimidating place. Even just finding your way through the hospital could be a bit of an issue. (laughs) That's kind of a, a, a little bit of what we do. We do also a lot of um, cultural competency, safety throughout, and that's on a daily basis as well. I find that here at Royal Inland Hospital, the medical staff and allied health admin and management are very curious, and I very much appreciate that. On a daily basis, we get questions as to why do you do this and why do you do that and what are smudges for, What? How, why are you doing a spiritual bath? And so I very much appreciate the the curiosity that uh, the staff have, and we're able to to help them through that. We have, since day one, been able to smudge within the hospital. I have smudged on every floor except for the ER, the cancer clinic. So we've been quite fortunate to, to be able to do that. And I think here at Royal Inland Hospital that the staff appreciates that as well. Uh, so much so that some of the managers know how to do a smudge if we're not here. So if there's been a few occasions where after hours, if it was an end-of-life smudge or if a baby was being born, they knew what to do in order to facilitate that to the point of calling maintenance and security Mm. and you know just helping the family through that so that's really yeah and maybe if you could walk us through knowing that we have things like the sacred space which has Mm. ventilation but knowing that you're able to go on every floor and do as much what are some of the things that needs to happen to make that occur? Because I'm imagining not every room has a good ventilation. Or does every floor have Every floor does, actually. Okay. Except, again, I have to go back to the ER because it's yeah. quite an open space. And the same as the cancer clinic. I'm not sure if you've ever seen, but it's a very open space as well. So quite fortunate to have the sacred space. I think we were one of the first hospitals in BC to have the sacred space. Mm. And that it used to be the chapel on the third floor. But chapel is very Christian so a lot of the denominations and even our people did not feel comfortable using that space given that it was very Christian so they developed the sacred space and that was Victor Gundell, Mark Brown, Joanne Mills were quite instrumental in that as well as many denominations that Victor worked with so if you go into the sacred space you're going to see that it's a very warm opening mm-hmm. space and it's 
non-denominational. So that's why we call it the sacred space and it's very well utilized. If the patient is able to ambulate or we are able to in some way get them to the sacred space, we like to bring them there to do smudging. If not, we are able to facilitate that again on any floor. Mm. So the process being, even if we're doing the smudge in the sacred space, is we have to alert security. Sometimes we might ask security just to be outside the room, uh, just so that we're not being interrupted during any ceremony. Mm. If it's in a two or four bed unit, that's where we try to bring them to the sacred space. Unless the patient, room patient does not mind, and mm -hmm. I've had that as well, where they were quite happy to be a part of that. That's so cool. Um, and the other thing too is we invite staff to take part in, especially if it's an end of life smudge, because mm -hmm. the medical staff are the ones who also have to have closure and that, that brings that to them. So they're, they're quite happy. We also do smudging for staff. I guess uh, another appreciation I have in that we've had staff members come to us to do smudging mm -hmm. with them because they're you know they're going through a really rough time and, and they need that cleanse and then we've also had and they must have found benefit from it yes being witness to it and observing and getting to a place of being able to ask for it exactly and uh, one of the other things that along with smudging is whenever there is a new ward or space management has asked uh, the APN program to smudge mm. the new ward and one of the very first ones we did was the first or the new ICU it's not new now, but yeah. <laughs> uh, so Gloria and I and Victor, we blessed and smudged that area. And then Gloria went and blessed uh, mm -hmm. ICU. Just in, So whenever there was a new ward, uh, and I know Cassie and Michelle have been quite instrumental in doing smudges for the staffing crew in their area and the administration. So mm -hmm. anything you want to add to that, Cass? Um, I think the other part is the new clinical service building, the urgent care clinic. We were able to smudge with the staff, and they, Carrie McLean Small, had actually requested that we go down with the staff and have a smudge for their opening. And then Michelle recently went back to do the uh, residential, what were they called, the family practice side of it. Oh, nice. Yeah. In terms of expectations around a request being made for a smudge, am I hearing correctly it takes about 15 to 30 minutes from request for smudge in order to get the system ready to be able to do that? Yeah, we want to give them some time to do that because they, again, they cover the whole hospital as well. So they've the maintenance has been, you know, pretty good in, in supporting our requests. A lot of times we set a time with the families, for example, if it's in the ICU and it's the end of life, if they have an elder who they want to facilitate by all means uh, we do have our own smudging bundle here that we've had from day one uh, so we can do the smudge but if they have somebody who they want to utilize then so we set a time and we usually try to give you know enough notice to maintenance for that it's set up for them and how does a person access the aboriginal patient navigator program here at royal inland so there are a few ways. If you phone into the main number and go to switchboard, ask for the APN, and they have our schedule so they know who's on. So they will forward the call to one of our cells. The medical staff also put in order enter referrals for an APN, which prints out to our station up here so that we on a daily basis are aware of mm. uh, who's requiring an APN. 
we can be reached by email as well. Uh, we do get referrals from communities, so the community nurses will phone uh, yeah. when they know that a patient is coming in from their community to give us the heads up, so a, a few ways to get us. Is there any connections knowing that that's from community, but what about like um, friendship centers or Métis organizations? Do they have, some of those places might also have community nurses per se, but maybe different titles that they can connect through as well? Yes, okay. yes. We do get a lot of calls coming from the community now. So keeping in mind, I want to keep with Cassie on the phone. Yes. So maybe if there's anything yeah. kind of with the APN role, um, maybe from your perspective, what does that look like to you as far as what the role is? Um, I think Deb's covered quite a bit of it. I think one other piece is that we connect with First Nations Health Authority and the communities in regards to support when clients are coming from out of town. So we often service a lot of people who are coming say, from the Williams Lake area or the Lytton area who are in need of accommodations and meals while they're there for a loved one. And so we are quite often reaching out to those services to connect them. So we do a lot of paperwork and a lot of talking to communities and organizing that stuff for them. So that leads me to the other question in terms of um, uh, the APN program. What can a person expect in terms of service from the program? We talked a lot about smudging. Um, it sounds like there's connect various connections, but what is the menu, if you will, of, of service that a client can access in the program? So I guess that let's start from when a patient comes in. It, our hope is that when they come in through the ER, that we are alerted that they're here. So at that point, that's where we go and introduce ourselves, and if they consent to APN support, we will continue from there. So in our consult, we determine what barriers they may have to service, what kind of issues they're having, determine what kind of supports they've had in their home community, if any. Mm -hmm. And at that point, we get consent to contact their health center. So we need permission from the patient to call the band nurse or the home care nurse within their community to give them information on what's happening to them while they're here in the hospital mm -hmm. and to kind of, kind of provide support and info. And with that, if what we're trying to do is discharge plans so that it's a smooth transition from hospital to home and that the continuity of care is there so mm -hmm. that they don't slip through the crack. So it, it can be challenging sometimes. Sometimes they do not want us to call the band. is a little frustrating for the bands, but uh, we have to uh, respect their confidentiality. If they change their minds, by all means, we'll definitely contact the bands and make sure they have what they need. And that might be um, wound care, diabetic care, any kind of mercy needs that they have when they get home. Could also mean making sure they have equipment when they get home and yeah. that the nurses are aware of any follow-up appointments that they may have so that it's not the last minute that they're informing them they need money to get back to Kamloops to, for a follow-up so that they're very aware ahead of time. I guess one of my questions is kind of because you mentioned when patients come in maybe through emergency and I think something unique to interior health is that we have Aboriginal self-identification. So is that the process that might alert APNs that there's an Aboriginal patient who may need support from an APN or is there a different way that you're kind of alerted to patients in the hospital? Yeah, actually that's one of the, the key things that we are utilizing. Every morning we get a printout to our station as to Aboriginal patients who've been admitted in the last 24 hours. So with that, what we've started doing, and, and I think this is since we've had Michelle as workload, uh, we've been able to go through that list and screen patients to see if they would benefit from the APN service. And we will go introduce ourselves and make them aware of the program. And if they consent, we'll continue 
continue to work with them. We also send that list to the transition liaisons, who are the discharge planners, as well as to the charge nurses on the floors. If by chance we're busy, they can screen those patients and send a referral for us. So that's one of the other ways that APNs can become involved. So I guess maybe Cassie, what does a successful APN patient story look like? What does it mean kind of when it's successful that you've interacted with the patient? I think when we're able to connect with them initially on discharge, so when someone's coming through eMERGE, connecting with them first thing, identifying any needs, any barriers to when they're going to be going home, and building up that trust and relationship throughout their visit. I find that if we're able to connect with them earlier and have periodic visits with them, we often find underlying causes or, or concerns while they're admitted, and those are able to be addressed before they actually go home, when before they probably wouldn't have even mentioned it to any staff. And then also, when someone's going home, if we're able to connect with the nurses back in community, it eases the anxiety about the patients going home, but also helps the nurses know what's going on with their community member, what they've had done, any follow-up, and it prevents them from um, readmitting to acute care. So it keeps them back in their home community with all the supports that they need. That's awesome. I love that. I find myself curious about the part where um, celebrating that the staff here have taken on smudging, yeah. for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm really curious because I've seen a lot of, for some of our uh, non-Indigenous colleagues, a hesitation, a bit of fear, because they don't want to get things wrong, right? They want to be respectful. And so I'm curious how that happened to a point where staff felt comfortable to, to take on such a sacred act. What did that look like, that transition for supporting them in, in doing that? can probably, she's been there for a lot longer than I have, she can probably address that part. For me, when I started, a lot of people already had the relationships with the Aboriginal patient mm -hmm. navigators at the hospital. Mm -hmm. And I, because I had already worked at the facility and I've already had met a lot of people, I already had that relationship with them. So they felt very comfortable coming to me and asking questions, but a lot of them have learned it from Deb and Gloria. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to go back to when the APN program started. It was quite strategic that the Aboriginal Health Program put us in the middle of the administration office. The administration office has the hospital administrator and all the managers for the whole hospital. And in learning the program and building it, we were quite dependent on them to help us kind of navigate the medical system. And I think it was at that point that they started asking questions and starting getting curious when we would be running by with our smudging bundle and uh, what is that and can I see what you're doing and they were also instrumental as well in, in developing the policies and the procedures around end of life and around the smudging protocols so I think we were quite fortunate in that way that we got that buy-in early and I think because we have quite a geographical and demographical population um, that are quite visible, the staff, again, I, I appreciate their curiosity in asking questions and, and wanting to participate. So I, I find in other areas within interior health that is not the case. I know there is a hesitation to be able to do smudging anywhere throughout the facility, but here it's it's not. What is some advice you'd give to those other sites, especially the ones with APNs and those other sites that might not have the same practices and buy-in and close relationship? And I think also don't undermine the, the importance that 
you APNs did in building those relationships and making them strong as well. But what would be some advice? That you I guess it's been being visible and being present and inviting questions, uh, sharing information uh, about what these uh, cultural and spiritual practices might be, mm-hmm. and and just talking. Right. I think I think that's a really important piece about helping with the cultural competency and safety uh, for the medical. And I think one of the other questions I'm curious about too is knowing that there's such diversity even on are people, you know, I'm thinking there are people who are wanting to do this, but they're not sure how to navigate it successfully and in a good way so that we're recognizing and being conscientious of the diversity of ways of even doing as much for them. What would be some advice for them? Yeah, you, you're very correct in that the diversity, even amongst our people, is, is quite uh, diverse. For instance, uh, a family from Ongacho will do something very different than a family from Chase. So just even as APNs, uh, recognizing and asking how would you like this facilitated? How mm-hmm. how does your community do smudging? Um, does your community do smudging mm-hmm. uh, at the time or end of life, death? We really have to be cognizant in asking the family because, again, somebody from the Kootenays might do something different than mm-hmm. somebody from Sink, for instance, and we have to be aware and, and curious ourselves because they're, they're quite diverse. So just being able to ask mm-hmm. and res- being respectful of how they practice. Um, so Cassie, what is one of the best experiences you've had as an APN at this site? Oh, that's a hard question. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, I don't know if I have like, an, like a specific one. I think um, we've spent a lot of time in ICU and we spend a lot of time with families, unfortunately, that are palliative in ICU or going through really hard times. And so I think for me, having those opportunities to be with those people during those times means the most to me because mm-hmm. you're really, people are super vulnerable. They're letting you in. They're talking to you and sharing things with you that you normally wouldn't get. Mm-hmm. I think is the most, the best part about it, like the best and the worst at the same time, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. I actually had a question for Cassie as well, too. Um, knowing that, how long have you been with uh, an APN with RIH? A year and a half. A year and a half. So knowing a year and a half versus 10 years plus with Deb, what was it like coming into an APN program that was so well established in the relationships that were built? You know, I think I, I walked into it pretty easy because <laughs> Deb and Gloria had done so much work. So everything was really well established when I got there. It wasn't hard for me to walk into that role. Mm-hmm. It definitely was a learning curve with the amount of work that we do in a day. Mm-hmm. That for me was, I had to wrap my mind around that and step out of my nursing hat and take up the role of an APM. But I'm very fortunate that I work with Deb, like work with Deb on a daily basis and got to know the routine and the people and how everything kind of runs. How do you think your experience as a nurse has helped you in the APN role? Oh, I think it was it's been a really big part of it. I think specifically coming from working in an Indigenous community, I see it from two different lenses. I see it from working in acute, from being in eMERGE and seeing people quickly and not thinking about the follow-through that's needed. Going back to community where you're trying to pick up the pieces and put the puzzles together about why they were there, what they need to do now, if there's anything that you need to follow up with. So just being very cognizant of the nursing role that's needed out in community. And Deb, how do you think your kind of social work background has helped you in the APN role? I think I need to come at that a little bit differently because my first degree is in psychology. I believe that's helped tremendously uh, clinical role. Being a hospital APN is 
being a clinical APN, and that's that's quite a bit different from the social work. But the social work really gave me the the background in listening from a different lens, mm-hmm. and it being as clinical as I was, which I I think when I first started this role was quite helpful. I think with the addition of my social work degree, just allows me to look at the patient and the situation from a different lens. I guess one of the things, and I'm not sure if we're getting near to a closing. I think, yeah, a couple minutes. Just yeah. To be mindful of everyone's time. But in the sense of, we've talked a lot about the amazing things that are happening. It, I'd be curious on two things. Um, what is the challenge that you think that exists out there for APNs that we need to be mindful of? in supporting and in program development, all those pieces. And then lastly, to always end off on inspiration, what is like one story that you really hold dear to your heart? Um, Particularly when I think of somebody who's been in for a year and a half and somebody who's been here since basically day one of the APN program. So I think um, to speak on a challenge, and, and this has been my challenge for many years is There is a very, very strong need for more APNs. Uh, I don't think people understand the amount of ground we cover in a day and the amount of situations that we run into. Uh, When I'm the only full-time APN, Cassie is part-time and Michelle is casual, so people need to recognize that I'm full-time. Uh, We do overlap and I I appreciate those days that we do overlap because that means we can split up the hospital uh, Mm -hmm. and that means I'm not a firefighter. Uh, I can be an APN. Um, When I say firefighter, basically all I'm doing is running throughout the hospital putting out fires. When we've had Michelle and Cassie on, we're allowed to divvy up the hospital and actually spend more time with the patient rather than running in and then running to the next patient. So that, for me, has always been a a challenge. Um, And my dream would be to have two APNs on at all times and a community APN. Mm -hmm. So when when you ask about that, because when we send our patients out, we don't know uh, if they're going to follow through, if they are being taken care of, uh, nor do we have the time to do follow-ups. There's just no time. So that's kind of the dream. Um, Cassie? I think my challenge is the exact same. You touched quite a bit on the acute side, and I'll just say for the community, I think that's one of the hardest parts when people leave and we know that they're not attached to anybody, Mm. so more specifically our urban Aboriginal people. um, That's the hardest part because you're kind of just hoping that what you've given them while they're there, they're going to be able to follow through with and have the ability to make those connections and go to the resources. But unfortunately, a lot of times we have people coming back, and so it's kind of just a revolving door where you're seeing them, they're going out, they're coming back, you're seeing them trying to make those connections, but they really need someone there to support them in at least initially making those connections. What inspires you to be the APN at the end of the day? You know, Great what's question. your driving force? So I think that's a that's a high note that we can end on, and it's about solid. <laughs> I guess it's the ability to help. The ability to help people in their tough times. Um, this is a safer space that we walk, you know, and I appreciate that people trust and respect that I can do that for them and I do my best. I think the best thing about my work is when I can walk somebody out and send them home because mm-hmm. I don't get to do that every day. 
So mm -hmm. I think that's when I can walk somebody out to their car or put them in a cab to go home, that's awesome. And Cassie? And for me, I think that the best part about my job is that I wake up every day that I'm going to work and I absolutely am excited to go. It's different. It's rewarding. I get to work with amazing people every single day. And I feel like at the end of the day, I've made a difference in at least one person's life. So for me, that's the best part about it. I think the staff that we work with at Royal Inland are really great. I love hearing the questions and I love talking about my culture and what I can share from my experiences. But I also love hearing everybody else's questions, comments, everything. Wonderful. That was such a great note to end on. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Episode 3 of Interior Voices. Visit our website at interiorhealth.ca slash interiorvoices for links to additional information about the APN program. Please join us again on February 19th for Episode 4, when our host Sheila Lewis talks with Judy Stern, Director of Aboriginal Mental Wellness, about Interior Health's Aboriginal Mental Wellness Plan. If you have questions or comments about today's podcast, you can email us at interiorvoices at interiorhealth.ca. We'd love to hear from you. And don't forget, Interior Voices is now available on iTunes. Before we go, I'm just going to start adding <laughs> yeah, more. I know, because now I want to redo. I do, and I now do we'll wanna... be back up to 50 minutes. <laughs>